0: Welcome to Living Chassidus. Together, let's live the Chassidus we learn. Welcome, everybody, and welcome to the kickoff for our life skill series for Living Chassidus. So welcome to everybody who's their first time here, and welcome to everyone who is back yet again. Last year, we had an incredible series of speakers. You can check it out on our YouTube channel. You can search Living Chassidus, and you'll find it. So today, we have the incredible chassidus of having Judy Ribner. She is a midwife. She graduated from Bayes-Yakov Academy High School as a val- valedictorian in 2008. She attended the CUNY College of Staten Island for her nursing degree. And she was one of the two students to be named the CUNY Merit Scholar. She completed her midwifery education at SUNY Downstate Medical Center with high honors. And she is finishing her doctorate at NYU's DNP program as a Susan Kuhn. Great. I'm doing great. Letty Scholar and Rory Myers, academic scholar. She was drawn to midwifery because of the gentle, because it is gentle and humble. And she has shadowed Dr. Eden Fromberg, holistic gynecologist prior to opening her own integrative GYN practice at the
1: Juhi Ash
0: Center, Juhi Ash Center holistic midwifery New York. And she offers integrative GYN care, prenatal care, and home birth. And she works with women because I love and care about them. She loves and cares about them. <laughs> so we have the great schluss to have Judy speak about cycle and everything that you want to know about the cycle. If you have any questions, you can submit them by writing. And can't wait. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Michael, for inviting me. And thank you to Kristen Leonard, who connected us. And I'm hoping to be at a birth next week with Kristen. So I'm going to thank her in person for this opportunity. And I really want to thank my mother always because my mother raised me to be motivated about health. My mother raised me to care about my health. My mother taught me how to care about my health. And my mother taught me how to care about other people. So I'm really here today because of my mother's efforts. And I want to thank her for that it's courageous to bring up this topic because it's such a charged topic. So Michal, you have a lot of courage for (laughs) addressing this topic (laughs) and let's do it together. So it's also nerve wracking for me because I'm talking to a blind, I'm blinded to the audience, but they're not blinded to me, right? They see me and I don't see them. So hi everybody and thank you for participating. And of course, um, submit your questions whatever forum that Michal created so that we can to the specifics that are relevant to you. Um, My personal connection to Chabad is interesting because my father used to take me to the Rebbe's cover as a child. So I've been to the Rebbe's cover quite a number of times. And the Rebbe has actually reached out to my great uncle as a surgeon um, for his professional help, like to help other people. So we're really coming full circle with my being with Lubavitch woman. I'm really honored for that. And, you know, when you think about your identity, just if you don't have a pen and paper, just think about your identity and think of four ways that you would describe yourself. Everyone take a minute now to think of four ways, like your four central aspects of your identity. And I'm thinking also. Anybody want to volunteer? <laughs> you came in late, so we're going <laughs> to pick on you. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to volunteer? <laughs> I can volunteer. Do you want to share? I, I can share. Um, sure. I don't, I
0: don't know if I've finished yet. Um, so I'm a Jew.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hmm
0: I'm a woman. Mm-hmm.
1: To get too American. <laughs> <laughs> that was very political. <laughs> yeah, that was four. That was Perfect. Four. Perfect. Four. Perfect. Amazing. So Jewish, Chabad, female, and American. Anybody else want to volunteer? Okay, then I'll volunteer. My identities are that I'm Jewish, that I'm female, that I'm a mother, and that I'm a midwife. And I think of a lot of women that I know who would put being female as one of their major identities because being female it's not just what we look like it's how we think it's how we feel it's our behaviors it's how we make decisions it's really how we live in our bodies and how we experience the world it's much bigger than just a specific reproductive system that we have it's much bigger than you know do you have feminine characteristics or are you masculine looking? It's much bigger than just facial features and a fundamental part of being female really are the parts that make us different and unique from men. And that of course comes down to reproduction. And when we think about cycles and when we think about menstruation, and when we think about ovulation and the process of menstruation and the buildup of hormones, I don't know that enough people have a positive association with it and
0: someone just wrote pain pain that's literally what someone just wrote okay
1: and okay so it's not my imagination (laughs) (laughs) it's not my imagination and that's something that we can change we if we're motivated enough to and for people who want it better they can really have it better and I don't have any agenda here tonight other than to give people information so that they can be empowered to make the choices that work for themselves, to make the choices that meet their values, their preferences and their needs. And, you know, we're standing here in a part of the world where we consume about half of the pharmaceuticals on the planet, but we're only, but we're in the United States, only 5% of the global population. So we are disproportionately, compared to the rest of the world, dependent on and quick to turn to drugs. We have a very pharmaceutical-driven healthcare system, and that's not going to change today or tomorrow, regardless of the election outcome. Again, we're not getting political. But what I mean to say, we're a system that's very deeply entrenched in using medication. So do we have good outcomes to show for it? No. In the last 10 years, for a number of years, we had a decreasing life expectancy, which means from 2013 to 2018, every year people in the United States were living shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. We are the only country in the entire industrialized world that every year has more mothers died during childbirth. We have American hospitals that have over 50% C-section rates. We have a population where the majority of adults have a chronic condition. I looked it up today so that I have current accurate information. 60% of adults in the United States have at least one chronic condition. It became normal, such as obesity, diabetes, um, asthma, cancer, right? These are all chronic conditions. It became normal to not be healthy. As a matter of fact, if you're an adult, and you don't have a chronic condition, you're the minority, you're the exception. I mean, that's a reality that we need to integrate and question and say, how have we become so sick? What are we doing wrong? Because something's not right about that. And. I, I mean, if, you, if you're if you more likely to live longer by living in Poland than in a high-resource country than the United States, that should be like, ouch, that doesn't sound right to me at all. So we could, yeah, we could nuke a third of the globe with the press of one button. We could put a man on the moon, but that doesn't mean that we have a healthcare system that's really aimed at health. That doesn't mean we have a healthcare system that promotes people's well-being, and I'm gonna suggest one possibility and that might sit well with people, it might might not. I think that part of our dependency on the pharmaceutical industry is because pharmaceutical industry gives a lot of donations to medical schools and therefore the training is very much directed in that direction. And then another piece of it is that the average American doctor's office sees about four patients an hour. So in 15 minutes, you're gonna introduce yourself to the person, the doctor's expected to take a history, do an exam and then make recommendations. How much time does that leave in 15 minutes to do education about health? How much time does that leave in 15 minutes to talk about lifestyle modifications? How much time in that 15 minutes does it, you have to go through the person's diet? I'm not a magician, I could never do that, right? So, All of these systemic pressures and these systemic factors have led us where we are today. So our discussion today is really gonna be about information about health so that we can take responsibility for ourselves and make decisions that are well-informed. Okay, so cycles come with a really negative connotation, but if we can leave out any pain, if we can leave out emotional um side effects, bad side effects, emotional ones, and any physical ones, then really there's tremendous value to the female cycle. We're a mammal. Other mammals, most mammals don't menstruate. They grow their mammals inside like we do. They gestate internally. So they have pregnancies like we do, but they don't menstruate most of them. Instead, their bodies reabsorb the blood each month, but we don't do that. And if we're not doing it, it means there's benefit to our shedding that blood and our rejuvenation and renewal each month because we're wired towards survival. Our bodies would not be metabolically wasteful every month to lose all that blood complete an entire process if it didn't benefit us. The body is hardwired towards survival and the body's hardwired toward health. The body wants to live, the body wants to thrive. Now we can disrupt that and we can make it impossible or we can impede the body's ability to thrive but there's an inherent wisdom within the female body that wants health, that wants to procreate, that wants to have a good cycle. Firstly, before we even say anything. Having a period doesn't even mean that a person is able to get pregnant or ovulating or having a normal hormonal pattern. When we think of when we're gonna when we think of a period like a true real period, that means a person's ovulated, which means they released an egg in the middle of the month that if conditions were right, they could become pregnant. That's considered like a healthy period that's in response to a cascade of hormones that happens throughout the 28 days on average, that midway through creates an opportunity, a narrow opportunity for pregnancy, a short window of time in middle of the cycle where a woman can get pregnant, and then two weeks later, ends with a period. So some people have periods and they're not ovulating, which means their body is not really Cycling the way a female is wired to cycle. Something's off. Some people are ovulating and having periods, but that comes with a big mess of pain, bad emotions, brain fog, and other negative symptoms. That also means the body's in disarray. The body's not happy and healthy. Some people have no periods at all and it's not from pregnancy. They just don't ovulate, menstruate, nothing. Their body's just not cascading enough hormones to create any such response. Is that body healthy, happy? No, or in harmony, not at all. A happy, balanced female body is one that has regular cycles. It's not 30 days apart, 50 days apart, 22 days apart. It's predictable. There's ovulation, which means midway in the cycle, a woman's capable of getting pregnant. It's not just a period. It's not just a few days of bleeding, but that there's, a tr- well, I'll tell you, how would you know if you're ovulating? You would know if you're ovulating, if when you think you're ovulating, which is about 14 days before your anticipated period, if starting, if you take your temperature orally, right under the tongue before you get out of bed, assuming you're not somebody who's like on call during the night to nurse a baby or not, or if you're sleeping through the night properly, if you take your basal body temperature with a thermometer under your tongue before you get out of bed and you have a slight increase in temperature right after you expect to ovulate and you sustain that slight increase in temperature, that body temperature, then that's an indication that you ovulated especially if you would have a blood test done on day 21 of your cycle, like a week after you ovulated and a week before your anticipated period, if you had a progesterone test then and you had a high level of progesterone, then those two together would tell you that you ovulated. Also during that time of ovulation, besides for the fact that your temperature will go up slightly afterward, you'll also notice mucus that's what looks like slippery egg whites. And that's also an indication of ovulation because the body produces like a type of discharge that's favorable to pregnancy that would allow sperm to meet the egg because the body, like we said, is wired toward survival. It's wired toward becoming pregnant. It's wired toward engaging in healthy behaviors. So that would be another symptom. But talking about a healthy cycle where Thank you for asking that question because now everybody would be able to go home and within 30 days know if they ovulated or not. But a person who's having regular cycles, like we described that within a couple of days of variation, they're predictable. A woman who's ovulating during those cycles and a woman who doesn't have distressing symptoms, that's the, the mark of a happy female body. And a healthy period is significant because it's really a mark of the woman's total health. If your body wants to survive, what's the least important thing for it to do? What's the least important thing? Can it not digest food? Can it not eliminate what it needs to eliminate? Can it not breathe? It doesn't have to reproduce. An individual can survive and not reproduce. Now, reproduction ensures the survivability of our species, right? So reproduction is important when you look at the species as a whole, but it's not important for the survival of the individual. If I would never to have a baby, does that make me unhealthy? So the first thing that our very wise body is going to get rid of when it's not being cared for properly, when it's under too much stress, when it doesn't have enough food, when it's not being fed the right foods, when it doesn't have enough nutrients, when it doesn't have enough vitamins, when it doesn't have enough sunshine, what's the first thing the body's gonna to eliminate to protect itself? Reproduction. So it's not accidental that women who are otherwise healthy and otherwise don't have medical conditions that their cycles are the place where our body expresses problems. It's not because the body's stupid or broken. It's that the body's so wise, the body knows I need to make sure I breathe properly. I need to make sure that I eliminate properly. These are essential for my survival. I need to prioritize. I'm being given limited nutrients, limited food. I'm under a lot of stress. I can't make a baby now. I need to use everything I have to keep this person alive. I will not reproduce. So it's almost like a monthly report card. If you have a healthy cycle, like we just described, regularity with ovulation, without distressing symptoms, then your body's in good harmony. Your body's happy. But if you don't have all those three components, unless you're breastfeeding, if you don't have all those three components, then... That's when you want to take a step back and say, okay, my body's talking to me. She is telling me I'm not well nourished. I'm not okay. So let's address it at the root. What causes people to have very severe PMS or very bad cramping or irregularity? What's causing that? I wish I could just say, oh, it's just one thing and this is like the magic bullet and we'll all walk out and like tomorrow we're all good. (laughs) It's highly individual. The body's so sophisticated. We're so many systems that are integrated with each other. There are billions of processes, billions of cells happening every second. So we're like a genius creation that. It takes some time, some investigating to figure out getting to the bottom of what the issue is. But assuming that there's no underlying pathology, which means assuming that there's, and for most people, they don't have an underlying pathology, assuming that there's no underlying major medical condition, assuming that the person doesn't have enormous fibroids, assuming the person doesn't have a thyroid problem, assuming that the person doesn't have, you know. Uh, any major metabolic disorder like diabetes, assuming that the person is in otherwise good health, then there's a number of aspects that we do every day, aspects of living that we do every day that can be annoying our bodies to the point that she will say, I'm not okay. My body, this body has dysbiosis, disbalance, and I'm going to say hi to you every month and remind you of that by having really bad PMS until you take care of me and until you prioritize me. So I'll tell you what some of those things are. Firstly, irregular sleep. The sleep cycle correlates, a healthy sleep cycle correlates with healthy cycling. Like the sleep cycle and the reproductive cycle are very much connected. The sleep hormone melatonin plays a big role in the function of other hormones. So... Most people, do they sleep regularly? Do they have healthy sleep? I hope. Healthy sleep means that you're sleeping in a very dark room. Healthy sleep means that you're not overheated. Healthy sleep means that you go to bed relatively at the same time each night. Like you're not sometimes at 2 a.m., sometimes at 10 p.m., sometimes at 12, that your body has a normal rhythm. Healthy sleep means that it's as dark as possible. Did we say that? Light is an interference. Healthy sleep means you don't work night shifts. I know, I'm like looking at myself in the mirror <laughs> the next time I attend the beautiful birth at night. <laughs> um, so sleeping on a regular cycle is important. Sleeping adequately, seven hours of sleep and getting to bed before midnight. Those are two really important ways to sleep properly. Let's move on to the next. Um, healthy sleep, a healthy exercise. What's healthy exercise? Healthy exercise means that it's regular, it's consistent, it should ideally be every day. And it should be strenuous enough that you feel like you're working out, that your body works, but not strenuous enough that you feel like you're killing yourself. Like listen to your body and let your body be your guide. But exercising regularly plays a role in hormone function because it impacts cortisol. Cortisol is a hormone of stress. Oh, she's heaven, cortisol is the hormone of stress. Hi, (laughs) Sana. Cortisol is the hormone of stress. It's like, I'm scared of dogs, by the way, like really deeply scared of dogs, I don't know why, but like if I walk down the street and there's a big dog that's not on a leash, my body releases cortisol so that I'm prepared to fight the dog or flight, run away from the dog. You want your cortisol levels to remain normal because those cortisol levels play a big role in how your reproductive cycle works. So if you're under chronic stress, your body's being pushed hormonally in a way that it will rebel and show it to you in your cycle. If you engage in relaxation, if you lead a lifestyle and this is easier said than done, where your stress levels are well-managed, Your body responds positively and favorably with your reproductive cycle. Cortisol can't be underestimated also in how it it fluctuates throughout the day. So you wake up with higher levels of cortisol. If you skip breakfast, you're pushing your body, You're, you're straining the stress system on your body. You wake up. You eat a good meal, like a protein meal that stabilizes your blood sugar. You stabilize your cortisol levels. You have conditions that are beyond your control that are deeply stressful. So you deep breathe, you meditate, you do yoga, you go for a massage, you go, you, you, you talk to a friend, you do what it takes for you to relax. And for every person, it means something different, but that relaxation, you'll, you'll get the dividends of that investment with your cycle. And of course, to reduce cortisol levels has benefits across the body beyond reproduction. But certainly cortisol plays a huge role in the reproductive cycle. So we talked about sleep. We talked about exercise. We talked about stress reduction. Let's talk about a good microbiome. That's like the crux of every health discussion. The microbiome are the billions of bacteria that colonize in your gut they colonize in the vaginal canal, they colonize on your skin, they colonize almost everywhere in your body, but the gut has an enormous microbiome. And those billions of bacteria are the intelligence of your body. They colonize, Colonize. yeah. They grow and they live there and they hang out there and they protect you from illness. They control in many ways your immune system. They help you digest your food. They help you metabolize hormones. They help you produce hormones properly. Those billions of bacteria in your gut, they communicate with your brain, so they affect how you think, if you can remember well. They affect how you are socially. They affect your mood. Those billions of bacteria in the gut, referred to as a microbiome, if I had to pick One issue that's not given enough attention to, that's not given enough value to, it's that issue in this part of the world, microbiome. And the research on it is still in its infancy. We don't even understand the full consequences of a healthy microbiome, how that helps a person. Now I was even reading that Parkinson's disease, they believe is correlated with a certain abnormality in the microbiome, a certain bacteria. Good bacteria species that's missing that impacts a person's brain function, but certainly when it comes to hormonal health, the microbiome is sacred. Because of its role that it plays in the immune system, how healthy you are and your hormones. So if a person takes antibiotics, it's very rare, by the way, that a healthy person should truly need antibiotics, very rare. If a person takes, and the CDC says that the the misuse of antibiotics in hospitals now is at 50%. And I think that that's a general, I think that that's being nice. What I've observed was higher, but I guess it varies by hospital. New York is particularly interventive compared to hospitals in the West. And I think that that number might be higher when it comes to private practices, because there's less regulation. And it comes back to those 15 minutes you have with a patient. How much time do you have? How quick is it to write out a prescription for antibiotic? Very quick. How much time do you have to talk about the risks of antibiotic? Right? It's, you don't really have that. It's harder to have that discussion. But the reason that people who take antibiotics, they end up saying that they feel more susceptible to getting sick again. It's not their imagination. They didn't grow monsters in their head. The antibiotic is an assault against the good bacteria in their microbiome. And because of that, until their body can rejuvenate itself and repair itself, the body is more susceptible to illness. It doesn't have those bacteria it needs for its immune system. It doesn't have those bacteria it needs for hormone. That's why people who are on hormonal contraception are told that if you take antibiotic, your contraception is less effective. That's real. It's because those good bacteria in your gut are to, you should protect that like anything you can. And how do you have a good microbiome? The first step is if you were born vaginally, that is a huge um, step toward having a good microbiome because the baby's gut is sterile sterile in utero. So as it gets born, it swallows the mother's vaginal bacteria and that becomes the seeds and the foundation of the baby's microbiome. Being breastfed cultivates good bacteria, not being given antibiotic, eating healthy foods, let's talk about healthy foods. Foods create, feed good bacteria in the gut. So healthy food that's diversified, that you eat different kinds of healthy foods, generates different kinds of healthy bacteria in the gut. And you will reap those benefits each month. You will reap those benefits when you try to digest food, your whole system is more efficient. You will reap those benefits that you're not sick that frequently. You will reap those benefits because cognitively, the functioning of your memory, the functioning of your learning ability will improve. What you put in your body has a tremendous amount of power to improve the quality of your life. I like ice cream, by the way. I like chocolate. These foods taste good. But when you think about the bigger picture and the impact of what you eat, on the rest of your functioning, it should sway our decision-making favorably toward healthy food. Let's talk about healthy food. Firstly, dairy is an inflammatory food. So that's like uh, that's like an American belief that we've been indoctrinated with, that milk is a great source of calcium. It's not. That's not the source of calcium that we should be turning to because we are um, calves, right? Like Each species is meant to drink the milk that's specific to their species. We're the only mammal that drinks another species milk. Goats don't drink from sheep. Sheep don't drink from cows and cows don't drink from goats, right? We're meant to just drink human milk when we were in infancy. And after that, goat milk or sheep milk, sheep milk is a much better alternative to cow's milk. Cow's milk is inflammatory. It just, it causes inflammation in the body and, When you think about cow's milk, it also creates microscopic holes in the gut that allow fecal matter, like feces, undigested, like digested food that the body wants to eliminate. It allows it to escape into the bloodstream of the body. And that's how it causes inflammation all over. It it triggers an, an immune response. So even if you're not officially allergic to milk, it is one of the biggest allergens globally but even if you're not allergic to milk even if you don't have an acute reaction which means you drink it and within a certain number of days you're itchy or within where you can't breathe even if you don't have any specific reaction that's immediate it's a sense it's a you can have a food sensitivity to it which means you have a very low grade immune response it causes low grade inflammation in your body and that inflammation upsets your period, so that inflammation can cause PMS, and it's just the body's way of saying, can you stop giving me a food that I don't digest well, that doesn't help me function well? It's just your body's way of saying, please stop. Yeah.
0: Is milk okay
1: sometimes? It's really goat milk. Is like no, never. Okay. try. you know There's no never. You know, it, we have to live. We have to, you know, so it's a personal choice, but ideally, a person should really avoid it. Like probiotics
0: of yogurt.
1: It's an excellent question with probiotic in general. So yogurt is a fermented food, and assuming that it's not made with preservatives and all sorts of sugars, because sugar grows bad bacteria in the stomach, like sugar encourages a bad microbiome, whereas healthy food encourages a good microbiome. So fermented foods are good. Um, And just in terms of taking a probiotic, like by itself, the issue with probiotics, it's not like, okay, you could take antibiotic and then you'll take a probiotic and you'll undo it. A probiotic does not graft, which means it doesn't remain permanently. If you give your body the strains of good bacteria through a probiotic, it will be there for as long as you keep giving it. But when you stop that bacteria doesn't know how to like create its roots as part of your body and colonize and really grow as part of your microbiome. So it's really through food that you develop a good microbiome. Like there's no quick pill shortcut. I mean, I wish there were, you know, I have it in my pocketbook, right? It's like, it's just, it's good food. It's making healthy choices. What are, what's good food? Gluten, by the way, is also another food that's really inflammatory. A lot of people who are not officially celiac disease or don't have official gluten intolerance, They can also have what we just described. If there's an inflammatory protein in gluten that creates inflammation, they can have a very low grade sensitivity to it that manifests itself as PMS, as no ovulation, as irregular cycles. It can just be gluten. Like if a person had to make two changes today with their diet, it would be to eliminate sugar, dairy, and gluten and eat more vegetables. That would just be like off the bat. Easy, very easy, easy, right? It's like just eliminate <laughs> sugar, gluten, <laughs> and dairy. But that can be a goal for a person who's really about to embark and take responsibility and say, I'm embarking on a journey now to restore my body. That would be a great way, a great place to start. What was the conclusion about yogurt? Because it is you said it's fermented, but it's also dairy. A high quality yogurt. Like a high quality yogurt, ideally, firstly, doesn't use cow's milk, but is built from a different kind of dairy, like sheep or goat, a high quality yogurt would also be one that doesn't have sugars. Cause otherwise, and I mean, like I look at yogurts in the grocery store and like they have red 40 and they have so many additives and they have so many preservatives. Like if you can't pronounce the name then you don't want that in your body, mm-hmm. unless it's like the probiotic that you can't pronounce like the lactobacillus. But if it's like a weird word, then it ha- that's a preservative. You don't want that in your body. So yogurt became like, you know, yogurt became. I want to keep myself to a time, so I'm going to move. Yogurt became like a food that I have to be so cautious in recommending because there's so many products on the market that are exploiting people's trust in yogurt, but at a price that's not worth paying the price. By
0: the way there are goat's milk and uh, sheep milk. milk available in yeah.
1: Wow, yeah. that's that's terrific. That's terrific. So you're
0: saying specifically high quality yogurt, and that would be not cow's milk,
1: right? Right, right.
0: So they're, they're
1: it's there. It's That's amazing. Whole empire poker, marketplace. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. Sure. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah. If someone were to implement all that you were saying, how long should it take? It's a it? very, it's a very good question. And the follicles that grow, the eggs that grow, it, the follicles, like what holds the egg, with the process for the egg to mature and be and ovulate, is about hundred days. So when a person ovulates healthily, it's really a marker for what's been happening in their body for the last 100 days. So if you're going to implement these changes, you can't expect results in 30 days from now. Your body's going to adapt to it pretty quickly. Your body's going to jump on it. Your body wants to be well. Your, the body wants to ovulate. And when you allow it to, when you enable it to, it will rejuvenate itself over the following months. Like I would give it three, four months, and you should already see a marked improvement. And we're going to go through a few other things. Um, Firstly, eating enough. If you exercise a lot, it's not the the excess exercise that prevents the periods. It's that people don't eat enough for that extra exercise. Eating enough food and eating enough carbohydrates is very important for ovulation. Carbohydrates, like healthy carbohydrates, like a potato with a peel on it that has a fiber, like a sweet potato with a peel on it, like starchy vegetables like squash these are all healthy carbohydrates rice whole grain rice that's a healthy carbohydrate it doesn't have gluten but it's a healthy carbohydrate and it's filling having enough protein like a balanced meal protein fat starch vegetable a healthy fat what's a healthy fat avocado coconut oil olive oil avocado oil definitely butter that's like grass-fed butter is is good yeah and Besides for healthy fats, what about healthy proteins, like good quality eggs, eggs, by the way, some people do have sensitivity to, but high quality meat, like grass fed meat, it's not that much more expensive than the other type. Grass fed meat means that they were conscious with what they fed the meat, the animals, so that the animal body isn't loaded with all sorts of things that you don't want in your body. So grass-fed meat is a high-quality form of meat. Lamb? Yes. Lamb is because lamb is not heavily commercialized. So it's a good quality meat. Duck is a good, very good alternative to chicken. Chicken is very heavily commercialized. They feed the chickens a lot of soy. That's, why we, that's one of the reasons we see precocious puberty in America, where girls are younger and younger when they get their periods because they're eating chicken that is fed food that is like a phytoestrogen in their body it mimics what estrogen looks like in their own body so it targets like breast tissue and all the other parts of the body that are receptive to estrogen so like chicken is chicken that's just bought in a supermarket that's not a high quality chicken should be avoided duck is a better alternative lamb we said or grass-fed meat and by the way red meat has a lot of the necessary a lot of the necessary nutrients for hormone production, like vitamin B6, vitamin B12. I I wrote them down because I wanna share them. Magnesium is a biggie for hormone health, a biggie. Magnesium, by the way, is also very calming. Magnesium makes you feel happy and it's found in nuts, seeds, and leafy vegetables. One of the reasons that magnesium helps with period pain directly is that magnesium It reduces something called prostaglandins, and that's a substance in the body that makes the uterus contract. So by reducing it, it relaxes the uterus and it reduces menstrual pain. That's how magnesium works to reduce menstrual pain. It makes the uterus relax. It's a muscle, the uterus. And instead of contracting, which is what a cramp essentially is, it's a uterine contraction. Instead, magnesium helps the uterus relax. That's how it reduces it. And that's also, that's in nuts. It's in seeds. It's in leafy vegetables. All of these vitamins that I'm going to mention, magnesium, B6, B12, vitamin D, zinc, selenium, you could supplement on all of these. But the best way to get vitamins that the body can really utilize is through food. That's how the body was designed to be nourished. That's how the body was designed to benefit From these tiny nutrients. Healthy sunshine. Can't overstate the importance of healthy sunshine in reproductive health, in mood health. Sunshine, if you're not burning, you should get the max that you could. The max you could without burning and that's very individual. It's based on your complexion. It's based on where you live in the on the globe like how direct the sunlight hits you how much sunlight you, how much sunlight you need per day is also dependent on season in the summer. You can get a lot more sunshine than you can in the winter. Like the sun is stronger than it is in the winter in the Northern hemisphere. So the, the guide is to get the max sunshine that you can without burning. That's really how you get proper vitamin D and that, plays a huge role in the whole cascade of hormone production. I want to share this with you because I want to show that during the typical month, the first half of the month, we're estrogen dominant, which means the main hormone that's circulating in our body from our ovaries is estrogen. And in the second half of our month, we're progesterone dominant. What is that? Does everyone look, is everybody looking on with me at the bottom most, the bottom most chart? So let's look at this together. The bottom most chart is telling us day of menstrual cycle. That day 14, that's ovulation. That's the time that a person could get pregnant. Day zero, let's let's start with day one. Day one is the first day of the woman's period. Two weeks later on a 28-day cycle, she could get pregnant. Two weeks after that, she's starting another cycle, right? It's day 28, she's about to start menstruating again. So in the first 14 days of a woman's cycle, from the time she gets her period through those 14 days, The main hormone that's circulating in her body is estradiol, it's like a form of estrogen. You see that corresponding light gray mark? It's estradiol. In the second half of her cycle, she has progesterone. So we feel differently during the first half of our cycle versus the second half. We have a different chemical circulating in our body. Estrogen and progesterone, they don't just target the uterus or the ovaries or breast tissue. There are billions of cells in the body that have receptors for estradiol and progesterone, which means there are cells all over the body that get impacted that, hey, there's estradiol floating around. Oh, or hey, there's progesterone floating around. There are receptors, it communicates with them. Estradiol and progesterone communicate with many parts of our body other than our reproductive system. So it's not accidental that people during the first half of their menstrual cycle from day zero to 14, and especially right before ovulation, before they're capable, right? When they're capable of getting pregnant, you see how there's a big surge in estrogen? That big surge in estrogen affects what people feel like. So if you count about, if you're on a 28 day cycle, which is about the American average, if you count 13 days from your, the first day of your period, that's when your estrogen, estradiol is at its peak. That's when you have the highest level of estradiol in your body. You feel happy that day. You feel creative that day. You feel like putting on makeup that day. You feel like going out shopping that day. You feel like exercising that day. Libido is up, a person's sex drive is up, but that doesn't mean, that's not only relevant for people who are in sexually active relationships, a person's sex drive is, a, is the motivational pathway for many other behaviors like wanting to get dressed in the morning, like wanting to look good, wanting to go shopping, being creative, being personable. So whether or not a person's in a sexually active relationship is inconsequential to this part of the discussion. Our behaviors are going to reflect that increase, that like buzz that we get. And the body's very smart. Why does the body make a person interested then in being attractive, in being sexual? Why does a person have that perk right before ovulation? because a body, like we said, is inherently wise. It's inherently wired to survival. If people had no drive the day that they could get pregnant, would they be getting pregnant? People need to want to engage in relations for it to ever happen. So at the time that the body's capable of reproducing the day just around ovulation, that's when the body feels that, that umph, that boost and interest. So having a healthy cycle is much more than just reducing PMS, reducing pain, being capable of getting pregnant. Having a healthy cycle regulates healthy emotions throughout the entire month, way beyond just the first few days before a period. We want to live with that boost. We want to be people who are excitable and stimulated and interested in the world. We want that engagement. And that's estradiol speaking in your body. That's the influence of estrogen. Healthy estrogen metabolism. You want estrogen to be metabolized healthily in your body that you don't have too much, you don't have too little, help your microbiome. Those bacteria in your gut escort out of your body estrogen that your body doesn't need. If you have healthy bacteria in your gut because you eat healthy, you reduce stress, you don't take antibiotic, your body will be able to release and eliminate the excess estrogen it doesn't want. An unhealthy microbiome reabsorbs that estrogen. That itself can cause PMS. That itself can cause heavy periods. Your body has an abnormal amount of estrogen it wasn't meant to have. It wants to escort it out of the body. It needs healthy bacteria to do so. It needs healthy bacteria to do so, and you can control that. Let's talk about progesterone. By the way, this is fascinating. I was just reading research about this, but it, it, it almost like gives me chills because, you know, it's scary to think how much we're impacted by the chemical signals of these different hormones in our body that switch on and off billions of cells across our entire organism. It's fascinating that there was research that was done that demonstrated that people, when they're ovulating, are attracted to men who have more masculine features. But people, and this is the rationale why, and people, women, during the second half of their cycle, when they're predominantly progesterone, and that's their talking hormone, they're attracted to men who are like financially stable and caring and loving. And why is that? The body is so wired toward survival that when it's capable of getting pregnant, it says, I want to mate with somebody who has good genes, like somebody who has a good jaw, looks masculine, and is attractive that way. But afterward, when the body's predominantly progesterone, and the body thinks it might have gotten pregnant. And that's why it's holding on to the uterine lining. It's like preparing itself for pregnancy, the second half of this of the month. Then the body says, one well, minute, if I'm growing a baby, I need a guy who's financially stable, who's caring, and who would make a good long-term partner to raise this baby. And I found it so fascinating that women's attractions were able to be predicted based on where they were chemically, where they were hormonally in their cycle. So, you know, the ramifications of that, of course, is that a person almost has to try out any perspective partner that they would enter into a long-term relationship they have to try them out on all days of their month because a person's (laughs) feelings I don't mean that in a funny way but you know it's like a person's feelings are so you're nodding a person's feelings are so influenced by what hormone is dominating them at that time that their attractions can change and I mean just from a practical place you know, the amount of time isn't so long. We're not like saying like you have to try them out with like a year's worth of hormones, you know? And I'm not like a relationship expert at all. So I'm not coming from a perspective of how much time people need to spend together or the emotional component. Just from a purely physiologic standpoint, there's real benefit to that. So what's your body doing during the second half of the month? It thinks it might be pregnant and it's preparing for that eventuality. So your body, okay, day 14, hmm, I know I could have gotten pregnant, the body knows. So hmm, let me prepare myself for this pregnancy. I'm going to produce a hormone that sustains pregnancy, which is progesterone, so that in the event that I did get pregnant, I can sustain it. I can grow this baby. So progesterone is the hormone of pregnancy and progesterone makes us feel calm. Progesterone builds healthy muscles. Progesterone helps your metabolism so that when you eat, you could actually break it down and digest it and not just let it be glued to you. Progesterone enhances your sleep. Progesterone enhances your mood. So to be able to build progesterone healthily, properly, and sufficiently each month is also going to impact you on so many levels beyond your ability to sustain a pregnancy, beyond your ability to not be spotting for many days before the period starts. That's typically a sign of two of progesterone levels that could benefit from being boosted. Progesterone almost works like the counterforce of estrogen, like estrogen builds up your uterus lining and progesterone makes sure it doesn't build up too much. So you really wanna have a very good ratio and a very good balance of estrogen and progesterone because they're working, they're like meant to be partners. They work differently. Like they have opposite effects and they're meant to blunt the impact of each other. They're meant to work in harmony. Okay, so let's talk for a minute, by the way, if it's just interesting to look at for you, if you see what your uterus looks like during these hormone levels, that first day of the cycle, not surprisingly, you see how the uterus is thick, the lining is thick because that's before it got shed. And then over right by day zero, the uterine lining is very thick. And then it's very thin a week later because it completely sheds during that week long period. And then gradually throughout the months, it thickens and thickens, assuming you have healthy hormone production to stimulate it to thicken. But assuming you have that healthy hormone production, you're then back to a thickened uterine lining that will shed once again. Okay. It's a very good question, and I really question if it's the impact of the sleep cycle, like jet lag, and we describe healthy sleep cycling correlates with healthy menstrual cycling. I also question if it's cortisol levels, like what does flying and that experience do to a person's stress hormone level? Because when we say cortisol, we think of stress, but it doesn't have to be a negative type of stress. It could be like an excitement. Also, it could be like a big change to the body. So that's how the body responds to it. And I question if it's the impact on cortisol that will manifest itself as impacting periods. Because like we said, we're very well integrated. So that's a very good point. Flying can influence it. I have a question. Sure. Is,
0: the drop, the, is it possible that the drop of progesterone right before the period, could that cause anxiety?
1: So the, the response to the body that's in imbalance, that has like too much estrogen and too little progesterone or some other or imbalance is that the feeling of PMS will be accentuated. And the reason is exactly what you just described. The drop in hormones right before a period, that makes the person have that drop. So the more abnormally elevated the hormone is, whew, the more the drop the more the the more the pms it's all rational not accidental right that was a good point that the pms is really that drop off look at estradiol right by pms days right day 28 big pms day day 27 big pms day look at where estradiol is in the body look how hit you know we have a surge of estradiol right by ovulation We have an amount of estradiol during the second half of the month, but look how it's going down. And that is where your estradiol is low and you don't feel that great. Like you don't feel that perky feeling. Like what I was describing, that good feeling you have when your estradiol is going up, 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 up. It's like the opposite of what it is before PMS. You want healthy estradiol levels because look how it impacts your mood. Like we said, the receptors for estrogen and estradiol are not just in the reproductive system, they're in the brain. Okay. So let's just go through PMS for a minute because I like organized it. Exercise. Exercise helps you reduce stress. It helps regulate your cortisol levels. Exercise helps you reduce inflammation in your body. We don't want inflammation in our body. It doesn't help hormone production. It doesn't do anything good, right? That's why we describe we want to stay away from inflammatory foods like dairy. We want to stay away from an inflammatory food like gluten. You want to stay away from um, antibiotics that we describe damages the microbiome or also creates permeability in the intestinal lining. It means fecal matter, feces, like microscopic feces, can escape through the digestive tract the intestinal tract into the bloodstream creating inflammation we want to avoid anything that damages the gut in any way bad food or antibiotic we want to preserve our intestinal health we want to preserve our bodies that we don't have inflammation we want to not have stress we want to exercise normally that's a key great way to reduce pms to the point that it's almost imperceptible and that's possible you want to avoid alcohol alcohol by the way interferes with how estrogen is metabolized. You want to avoid that. And then it's magnesium, vitamin B6, and zinc. Those are really the key. But when we discussed that before, magnesium is in nuts, it's in seeds, it's in leafy vegetables like romaine lettuce, dark green romaine lettuce. The B vitamins are in meat. Zinc is in red meats, which is also essential for hormone health. If you really want to eat like a good balanced meal of a high quality protein, going back to that, a high quality starch, high quality fat and green leafy vegetables. So that's with PMS. Um, the acne, by the way, I want to mention, you know, acne that is hormone influenced, you know, our hormones affect how we produce oil in these glands. So that's why you see it manifest as acne, but really... Uh, causes for acne are really inflammation in the body and insulin resistance, meaning too much sugar and or lack of exercise. And when you think of the role that, that reducing inflammation and reducing insulin resistance, like eating properly, that itself can improve the acne that people are experiencing hormonally. It's not just like, well, the hormones completely control it. We control our hormones. So ultimately we control our acne. By the way, progesterone, that second half of the month is really good for hair. It makes healthy hair. You should just know that. Like when you have good levels of progesterone, you have healthy, good looking hair. That's a sign of it. My sister's hair goes in straight when she's pregnant. Really? And usually it's like super gross. So isn't that fascinating that her progesterone is, she's able to see such obvious changes to her hair growth. So yeah. So progesterone is is real. It affects us on so many levels. Like you really want healthy progesterone way beyond reasons of pregnancy. You really want it metabolism. You want it for your muscles. You want it for bone health. You want it, of course, for reproductive health. You want it, of course, for bleeding the right amount, the right amount of bleeding is anywhere from 25 milliliters to 80 milliliters, by the way, the average American woman loses 50 milliliters of blood. So it really depends on what the person's wearing, like if they're wearing a, something that's super absorbent or something that's lighter. Um, and then you can look up based on what the person's wearing to absorb it, how much it holds and make that assessment. Um, when it comes to milliliters, I believe 15 milliliters is one tablespoon. So if the average person is losing about five, Uh, about three tablespoons of blood a month, a little more than that over the course of those days. 25 to 80 is considered normal. Yes. Someone just sent a question. She wants to know if someone has fertility issues like PCOS or doesn't ovulate, is there some way to solve it naturally or is really an imbalance that needs medical intervention? (laughs) PCOS is something called a diagnosis is given by a diagnosis of, of exclusion, which means PCOS is given to people because they weren't, they didn't meet the di- diagnostic criteria of other conditions, but they're not ovulating, so we're gonna call them PCOS. But PCOS really has very specific criteria and it needs to be diagnosed correctly, because I think that there's a, a widespread overdiagnosis of PCOS. PCOS also has a number of different causes. It can be caused by inflammation and reducing inflammation in the body exactly the way we described, dietarily primarily, exercise, and what we just described will help inflammatory-induced PCOS. Most PCOSs are a result of insulin-resistant PCOS, which means the body is too much of a hormone insulin. And that hormone interferes with our ability to ovulate, because what we're describing is that hormones all talk to each other and a person who has insulin resistant PCOS benefits tremendously from dietary changes. That can be the make or breaker for them. Putting somebody on the pill for PCOS, if you think about it, is that solving their problem? The pill is going to shut down all their hormones. The pill is gonna make it, they don't ovulate. So if a person has PCOS and they're not ovulating, It's giving them a pill that's gonna shut down all their hormones, a solution, just because every 28 days they'll bleed. The bleeding from a pill has nothing to do with a period. We said a period is after that cascade of hormones, after ovulation. Just releasing blood from there is not a period. It's a bleeding from the pill is a chemically, just withdrawing a certain synthetic chemical that induces bleeding. It's not a result of ovulation. The woman doesn't ovulate when she's on the pill. There's a reason she can't get pregnant. That's how the pill works. It makes women not ovulate. It shuts down the cascade of normal female functioning. So for a woman in the United States system, we treat PCOS with the pill. But how can we call that a treatment if the person's not ovulating? As a matter of fact, the pill can even exacerbate PCOS because the pill firstly interferes with the person's ability to metabolize sugar. So they can make an insulin resistant person have even worse insulin resistance. So it can worsen the cause of the PCOS in the first place. The pill also will alter the person's microbiome. The pill will alter a person's immune functioning. So if they have inflammatory induced PCOS, it will cause more inflammation in their body. The pill, and like we said, the pill's periods aren't really periods because you can arbitrarily decide how often you want to bleed. Do you want to bleed every month? Do you want to bleed every 80 days? There are pills that go by different packages that let you pick whenever you want to bleed. And that bleeding is truly necessary on the pill because other bo- otherwise the body would rebel and have breakthrough bleeding. It like needs to release itself. The body needs to release the lining every certain number of days, but you can pick when you wanna do it. It has nothing to do with a period. It has nothing to do with a cascade of, of hormones. So the pill is essentially a shutdown of female hormones. When the pill was first introduced, people didn't have really other options to preventing pregnancy. so to get women to be able to go to the workforce, which is what the pill accomplished, like when the pill was legalized, it enabled women to join the workforce. It enabled women to get college degrees because it freed them of the consequences of having a sexual relationship, right? It made it that they can be in a relationship and not get pregnant. But in today's day, we have so many other alternatives that there are many more options for people who don't want to be pregnant without needing to shut down their entire hormone system. It's interesting because the pill, you know, it, it made it that women who, who don't want to get pregnant can lead a lifestyle that is only possible if they're not pregnant. But what the pill has also done is that it's altered the way women feel during the entire month, because we just described how estradiol gives you that perky feeling. We just described how estradiol makes you want to go shopping, makes you want to put on makeup, makes you want to interact socially, makes you have that flirtatiousness. And I don't mean that in a negative connotation. It gives you spunk in life. But if you're going to give it to the woman synthetically, she's not going to produce her own. And that synthetic one doesn't work like the way ours really truly does. If you're going to shut down progesterone, that mood enhancing hormone, that hormone that builds muscle, that hormone that helps you process sugar. If you're going to shut that all down, you've deprived the woman of the benefits of her natural cycle. The benefits of a woman's natural cycle extend way beyond the production. And that's not surprising that people who are, who go off a pill. They it it potentially impacts how they're still attracted to their partner. Like there's research on women who made commitments to partners while they were on the pill and how their preferences really changed once they went off of it because it wasn't the real them when they were on the pill. It was an outside synthetic lab created chemical that is structured similarly enough to their own that it could trick the body into thinking it's pregnant so that it shuts down this whole surge that causes ovulation, just flatline it and shut it down. But in doing so, what price is a woman paying? Most people in the United States who have autoimmune disorders are women. disproportionately the ones who have autoimmune disorders. And autoimmunity is a very wide range of diagnosis. It can mean asthma. It can mean eczema. It can mean allergies. It can mean certain infertility issues. It can mean a thyroid problem. Autoimmunity is a very big group of diagnoses. Autoimmunity is disproportionately affecting women. We have to question, is it the pill that has caused that? The pill is The most recent research that I saw on a government website was from 2017, so it could be it has changed in 2018, 2019, or 2020, but the most recent research is that the pill is the most common form of contraception in the United States, besides for sterilization. But we have a long-standing history of not honoring women's reproductive systems. What's the most common operating room procedures in the United States? C-sections and hysterectomies, right? Surgeries that cut open or cut out a woman's uterus. Those are some of the most common operating room procedures in the United States. We had a generation of women who routinely, up until not so long ago, routinely were cut open to have a baby and had a surgery done on muscles that control their continence, had a surgery on muscles that keep their organs in the right place right? An episiotomy. Did men ever suffer an unnecessary surgery, like millions and millions of men every year? I mean, like over the course of many years, just routinely undergoing an unnecessary surgery? No. So we're in a society that is callous with women's bodies. We are, that's the reality. Women don't have to tear during childbirth. They shouldn't need to have stitches. Like women were designed to have babies. How did that episiotomy just take off and become routine, right? When was the last time I had to stitch up a woman who had a baby? I never had to stitch a woman up who had a baby so far in my practice. Thank God, never. Like, I really care about the mother. I do my best to try to protect her. I'm, I'm saying, like, God made the body that a woman should have a baby. You know what I mean? It works, <laughs> you know, almost always it works. I'm just trying to describe that we have a society that's pretty callous toward women's woman's body. So the fact that the pill became so mainstreamed is also reflective of those attitudes. And sterilization is the most common procedure, the most common form of contraception for married couples in the United States and for unmarried women, it's hormonal contraception. Yeah, so when we talk about why women are overwhelmingly the ones suffering from autoimmune conditions, you have to question it, you know? Um, what the pill also, by the way, in general, it interferes with oxytocin. That's like the hormone that's love and bonding. We're gonna finish in like three minutes. That's a, is that okay, Micha? That's a hormone of love and bonding. So that's also why people who are on the pill can feel attracted differently and bond differently than when a woman's in her true, natural, powerful state. That's another one of the reasons. Um, I wish I can say that, you know, I wish that there was an awareness. We're in a society that has a a very big value to regulating a woman's cycles before getting married. And people have therefore turned to the pill as a solution to that. And I wish that there was an awareness that people understood there's no way to predict how you're gonna metabolize the pill. There are people who do have very bad symptoms right away. There are people who feel good on it. There's no way to know how you're gonna metabolize it. But to shut down a woman's entire ability to conceive a baby and then Mm -hmm. value so much that she should be able to have a baby, to me is that concern of, will she be able to metabolize and eliminate the pill to the fullest extent that she needs to to conceive a baby healthfully afterward? and the quickness which we turn to, oh, we wanna get regulated for our wedding date. Firstly, you might be spotting from the pill really badly because it takes some some women a number of months till they adapt to those synthetic hormones. So it's not even a guarantee by any stretch of the imagination, but to think that there are people who will value their fertility so much afterward who are shutting it down completely Will their body eliminate that drug very quickly and efficiently? I don't know. Will they have twins from it afterward? I don't know. We know that that's correlated people who are on the pill to having twins. Will their body have an ectopic pregnancy from it? We don't know. Is that common? No, but we don't know, which means like a pregnancy that grows outside the uterus. We don't know what that impact of that pill can be on that woman's body so to make a decision fully informed of the potential consequences is really important and then it's a very personal choice everybody has a different orientation toward shutting down their entire reproductive system everyone has a different orientation toward relying on a pharmaceutical product that's a very personal choice but i just i what i just mean to communicate is that i wish that that choice can be made with the mindfulness of what the potential consequences are I don't know what percentage of women who struggle with infertility is a consequence of their taking a pill. Nobody can ever know that. No one can give you that answer. Um, So I wanna just wrap up to say that when your body is happy, your monthly report card is a happy, healthy cycle and feeling good throughout the month and your lifestyle choices and your dietary choices can really impact it.